Welcome to another edition of the Bow Rush Podcast. You're listening to episode 008. I'm your host, Travis Stowe. With me is my co-host, Scott Nelson. How you doing, Scott? Hey, I'm here, Travis. How you doing today, bud? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Oh, I'm not doing too bad, man. Awesome. Actually, we've had a, a kind of a warm front, so I think it's messed up some of the tactics that we were going to use while going hunting. But, you know, I guess the, the point is just to still get out there, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Any, any time spent in the wood is, woods is good time. Um, definitely changed some stuff up, though, with the warmer weather that came through. Um, it's, it's given us some good opportunities. We just haven't been able to capitalize yet, I'm sure, over this. Uh, hope, hopefully tomorrow we'll be able to get in there and, and get something down on the ground. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. So you know, today we have a awesome guest on. Uh, it's a personal friend of of both you and me, um, Anthony Dixon. He's out of Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, he he's got a ton of experience in this industry. Um, he's he's I would say credited with kind of establishing long distance shooting. Um, uh, he also he runs a company called Forty Six Rail. It's a it's a tactical hunting apparel company that's out of Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, check him out at 46rail.com. But we're going to bring Anthony in, talk to him a little bit about his company, about shooting, about hunting, and uh, just see how things are going with him. Let's get started. Hello. Hey, Anthony. Hey, what's going on, Anthony? How much are you? Oh, hanging in there, bud. You've been a part of archery and bow hunting for quite some time now, and you've kind of been in the forefront of bow hunters to the long-distance shooting. You started your own tactical clothing line for outdoor hunters, and it's called 46 Rail. But uh, before we really dive into everything, let's step back a little bit and get a glimpse of how you actually got started with bow hunting. I, I guess um, I started in Michigan. My dad um, was a hunter. He was uh, fortunate enough and, and able enough to buy me a bow. And uh, I lived in the city. I had to shoot uh, into the back of the garage, uh, which I'm 99% sure was definitely uh, illegal. Just, uh, you know, you're, you're shooting a weapon in, the, in, in very much the city of uh, East Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's a little ritzy place that... Uh, my uh, my dad and my mom uh, owned a house there, and I and uh, I went to live with them. I had left my my mom and went to move with my dad when I was a teenager in high school, and that's how it started. So I would I would have to drive by. I remember driving my dad Delta eighty eight. <laughs> if you ever see one driving down the road, you'll be like, whoa, four door. And I would borrow dad's car, and I would drive to the local state land, and I would hunt and. I remember, um, you know, being completely terrified, getting out of the car. It was dark, and, and I was, uh, you know, obviously old enough to drive. And I would walk into the woods, not very far, you know, maybe about four or five hundred yards, which was probably far then. And I, and I, would, I saw this scrape from previous times of scouting this land, and and I would go and sit, and then I'd always leave early, you know, for some reason I was always afraid of the dark. Always, there's a boogeyman, you know, <laughs> and. And he does exist, and I, and I always, I always was just, I'd always leave early on my night sit, and I never, I don't know if I've ever under, I don't have that problem now, but um, I'll, I'll try to speed this story up. So anyway, that's where I started, and I would be in Michigan, and I was shooting fingers, and I was shooting older bows, and 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 they didn't have mechanical blades then, and we would make our own tree stands out of two by fours. Uh, just being a kid and building tree forts, and and that's that's how it was back then. And 
then um, I used to read a magazine called North American Whitetail, and it was brand new back then. And they would have articles about guys doing spot and stalk for whitetails way back when. They had guys, um, you know, taking a rake and cleaning the leaves out of the way so they could enter the field, uh, enter a you know, farm field or whatever and go into the woods 70 yards or 40 yards. And so I would do things like that. I made maps of the deer trails. I didn't know what the hell the deer trail was. I couldn't tell you where the bedding area was. I couldn't, you know, I was trying to figure this stuff out on my own. And I wasn't good at it. I mean, I would make these maps with crayons and mark them all and write down like swamp and then wetland, but I couldn't tell you where the hell they were sleeping. I just couldn't grasp that part. And I remember one night I, I read this article in North American Whitetail about making a mock scrape. So I made a mock scrape. Uh, I cut some deer glands out of a deer that I found dead on the side of the road that was real fresh. And I hung those deer glands uh, in the back legs there. And I hung those, you know, by the scrape. That's what they told you to do. Use rubber gloves. And then I took a knife and I, I made a rub. And I did it on this little knoll. And, and I knew where the swamp was. And I knew where this other low part was. But I didn't know if they were bedding in the low part this little low bottom and it was more, it was less than 300 yards between the two of them. And I was in the middle. So I got up there and I had this, you know, the stabilizer thing that had a bunch of yarn in it or, or not yarn, but it was actually like dental floss. And you would tie that to the end of your arrow. <laughs> this is great <laughs> stuff. <laughs> and so I do this, right. And I, the spear comes in, I got this tree stand. I raked out the, the, the trail going to this tree stand and um, I'm in Michigan. Most of the stuff there, if it's got antlers, is definitely wiped out, uh, shot at, killed. And so here I am. Um, this deer comes in, and he checks this scrape, and I shoot, and I miss. Well, now I got this string that's from my bow, and it's over the top of the deer, and he's walking around. And as he's walking, he's pulling more string out of my bow because it's, <laughs> kind of hung up on <laughs> so, so I'm like, uh, how do I cut this? My knife is on my side, but I got a deer in front of me that I want to shoot. I just shot at him and missed. I went over him. So I grab another arrow, and, I, and I'm like, I don't want to pull on the string, right? Because if it gets taunt, then he's going to get scared, and he's going to run off. And this, this is like a two-point or a three-point. And so I cut it, and I, I retied. There was this little mechanism that you would you would tie your string back to the broadhead. So I had time to do this and I shoot and I miss again. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but this time he takes off, you know, so I, I, I cut the string again and I don't have, uh, one of these little wire things that would go on, uh, in between the ferrule of the broadhead and the, and the arrow shaft. I didn't have any more. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, Oh great. You know, now you know, I've never tracked an animal by myself, you know, and so another buck comes in, and it was a 10-point, and he had really white antlers. And I shoot at him, and I missed him. And, and then, uh, you know, he, he kind of scampered off. He wasn't going to have much to do with this. And then, uh, you know, like an hour later, another buck comes in, and he wasn't a very good buck. You know, I don't know, maybe a five, five by two or something, you know, kind of a goofball. And I shoot, and I miss him. So I'm like, hey, man, this mock scrape stuff's working great. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and so I, I remember going home that night and, you know, you would basically sit in, you know, BDU type gear from, you know, the military and, and, 
it was very cold and, and, you know, this was, uh, early October in, in Michigan back then. And you know, I got home and I walked in the garage and my dad's like, Oh, well, how, you know, how was it? You know, cause I could just hunt right out the back door. And my dad's like, Oh, how was your hunt? You know, I was like, yeah, I missed five. He's like, you just looked at me and, and very calmly said, you should quit. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at him and I was like, I didn't even say anything, you know, cause he was a pretty wicked man at the time. Very deliberate. In, in what he was going to say, how he was going to say it, and when he would say it. And um, now he's a much, much softer man, and obviously he's older, but uh, I'll never forget that. Um, so from there, you know, I, I moved out west to pursue skiing and, and did that, and then I, I slowly got back into archery from skiing, and then I started skiing around the world and having fun and, and getting paid to do it as a pro skier. And then I was just like, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of getting tired of this. Um, I've done it. I've done what I wanted to do. And I got out of it what I wanted. And uh, so I took the last money I had. I bought a film camera and I'd been in front of the camera, film cameras in front of them a bunch when I was skiing. So then I was like, well, I'd like to learn how to run them. So I was like, well, I'll just, I'm just going to go make a hunting movie and you know, a few of my buddies were like, what the hell are you doing that for? You know, my dad would never say anything like, oh, you shouldn't do that. Or that sounds like a waste. He's like, oh, cool. You know, that'll be good. So I made, I made one movie. I got some guys together. Um, I set it up somewhat like Primo's back in the day, you know, and, um, we went out there and did the best we could and, and turned a bunch of guys into, you know, really good shooters and, you know, some of them are are still hunting, and some of them are doing you know duck hunting, geese, and and so it just evolves, you know, and you just keep on pushing yourself until you're satisfied. And and you know now I'm uh, I've been pretty successful. You know, I'm down in my basement right now. I've got a ton of racks that are just skull mounts. They're just sitting there, and I've got a you know the rest of my house is filled with deer, and I don't have any more room. My wife says uh, that's it for mounts and uh i don't know and, and here i am talking to you guys doing a doing a archery podcast show which is really cool yeah it is pretty cool and we're having a lot of fun with it and i'm really glad you came on and we'll get some good information i think you know scott how about you get it started so you know out in utah and out west you know long distance shooting is a, is a much more prevalent thing than in some part of this country like down south you don't have a whole lot of opportunity to take those long shots at the same thing, you know, 3d is starting to expand all over the U S and some of those longer 65 to hundred yard shots are involved with that. So with guys down here in the South who don't regular regularly have an opportunity to shoot long distance during the archery season, you know, at, at live animals, what's, what's the benefit for them for shooting long distance? How does that help their archery in general? Okay. Um, What's the benefit of long-distance shooting opposed to shooting 20, 30, and 40 yards? Uh, the biggest thing that, that uh, I have found in, in doing that is being able to be accurate at longer distances makes uh, your 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, which I would consider short shots, um, it makes them easier. In fact, I will shoot um, those distances with less attention because I can get away with m more mistakes. And the farther you go back, the, the fewer mistakes uh, the individual uh, he or she can make. So uh, want to get good? Uh, yeah, want to make archery exciting again? 
uh, that's the best way. Uh, well, you know, when, when you're talking about long distance shooting, you know, you get into, you get into different gear. Most people that go out and just buy something from their pro shop or from one of the big box stores, you know, they get set mm-hmm. up with it, with their standard bow, their standard rest, their standard sight. Now that stuff, you know, from what I've seen, it'll, it'll work for some of those mid range, long distance shots you're talking about. But really, what's the next step? What's what's the first piece you want to replace on a bow to make yourself more accurate and become better at long distance shooting? Well, let's just let's just take for instance the individual has a a good rest, a rest that has micro adjustability, not a whisker biscuit. Mm-hmm. And the the next thing that you know you may have a five pin sight. Now I only shoot a single pin sight, and it's arguably you know, people say, well, what's the benefit of a single pin? I can shoot every distance from, say, five yards all the way out to, uh, depending on the speed of the bow. Uh, let's just take my bow, for instance. Uh, I shoot an Elite uh, Energy 35, and I have 80-pound limbs on it. And with the sight tape that I have from Archer's Advantage on there, I can shoot about uh, 117 to 125. Now, is that a auto-changing, or do you have to manually change those settings? No, it's a man- it's, this is manually. So, okay. So, you, you know, this is where, where things get, get sticky, is someone says, well, you know, that's unethical to shoot a long shot. Um, if, if you want to talk about unethical, you have a 99% of all people have a 20, 30, 40-yard pin. So what are they doing? Because those animals are very rarely at a set distance. So a whitetail hunter will say, well, I just shoot 20 yards. My farthest shot is maybe 25 to 30. I would never consider taking a 40-yard shot. The only reason why he doesn't consider that is because, one, he doesn't practice enough to really enjoy a 40-yard shot. The arrow just starts to fly at 40. So if you want to be more successful in the field, most whitetail hunters will say, I should have moved my stand because the deer came in and he came over here three times. They never say, (laughs) even though they spend the money on the boat, they spend the money on sites, everything that they spend their money on. Most guys have three or four different types of arrows in their quiver, which is ridiculous. You don't run three different rounds through a gun. So you need to shoot the same round. And learning how to shoot to 40 yards is pretty simple. And if you are somewhere around the 300 feet per second, that's fast enough. And that's shooting a bow at 70 pounds, which most guys, I think, shoot their bows at 64 and 65 pounds, which is fine. But if you, if you really want to have a flat shooting bow, it's best to shoot it at 70. Mm-hmm. That's when the bow performs at its best. Not to say that it doesn't perform well at 60 or 40, because they do. But if you want, to, you want to blow through that animal and have a flat trajectory of that particular round that comes out of the bow, that's... That's what we're talking about. You have the uh, people that go hunting, and then you also have the ones that do uh, 3D targets. 3D targets, most people are using just fill points, and then when they go hunting, they're using some sort of broadhead. Uh, long distance, does it make sense to, or does it still seem ethical to shoot a solid broadhead, or does it seem better to shoot a mechanical because it has a fly or a, a straighter trajectory? Well, when you say solid broadhead, you're talking about a fixed broadhead. Fixed broadhead, correct. So, so fixed so if you're going to shoot a fixed head, most fixed heads on the market can shoot very, very well to 50 yards. 
and the separation will start once you leave 50 and go to 70 and 80 and 90 and 100, 110, 120, 125. When you start stepping out there at the longer distances, that's when I prefer a mechanical. Mm-hmm. You can make 10 mistakes with a mechanical and you can make zero mistakes with a fixed blade. What do you mean by that? Um, hand torque, uh, let's just say most bows aren't tuned well. Most, there's a lot of bows that go out of tune, meaning uh, like a cam and a half system, um, they can go out of tune. They can not match up top and bottom cam. And so that can happen periodically when you're shooting and practicing. And most guys, when they go hunting, they might practice once or twice a week. And, and then they go out in the field and something changes. It might be a new bow and they might have a, uh, a factory string on there that would be a, a, uh, a string that can stretch. And I, I shoot winners twice strings. They've always been a very, very good string for me. It's an aftermarket string. Um, I've been very happy with the, the success of that string. Um, there's other strings on the market that um, that might be comparable. Um, I know what I shoot and what I like, and I stick to it. And uh, I've shot for for Winner's Choice um, and not been sponsored by them for, well, I don't know, I've been doing it for probably 12 years now, and and I would say the last three I actually shoot for them. Hmm. But before that, I would buy a new bow or I would get a new bow. I remember when I, I shot for Hoyt for a long time. And uh, I'd get a brand new Hoyt bow and I'd rip the strings off of it. And I'd put winner's choice strings on it. Shit, what you believe and, in, And right? you wouldn't think that's a big deal. You wouldn't think that's a big deal. And this is why I do it. One, I don't like a lot of string stretch. That means I got tuning issues. I don't want to have tuning issues. And I don't have a rubber boot that ties to my cable and comes back to my peep to straighten that peep out so I can see correctly. Mm-hmm. With a custom string, I don't have to have that rubber boot. I just have a, a aluminum peep that uh, once you tune that in with a new bow, it'll sit right. Every time you come back to full draw, it sits perfect. Mm-hmm. You can see right through the peep and right around the sight window. Huh. Well, you know, to kind of backtrack just a little bit, because I think there's kind of a, a vital point that you touched on that you didn't, you didn't dive all the way into. You, you sure. were talking about the the ethics of, of hunting, you know, yeah. and you started talking about how you have a, you have an adjustable single pin, whereas you know right. a lot of guys right. are shooting that that five pin that is set in there, you know, ten or 20, 20 yard increments. Whereas with you know, in that point, it comes into a little bit of a guessing game. You you know they're at 45 yards, but you have a 40-yard pin and a 50-yard pin, so you're kind of guessing at, at what that 45 yardage is with your pin, whereas your setup, that's not what you do. Kind of talk about a little bit with yours and how you adjust it to dial it in on your shots. So, to, to back up, and I apologize for, for jumping off of that. No, no. Uh, no that's... The, the, a 20 and a 30 yard and a, and a 40 pin. Say you have three pins. What are you going to do when the animal is at 22 or 24? You're going to hold high, right? Mm-hmm. So you draw your bow back. He's standing in front of you. Let's just take it. We're, we're, we're less than 20 feet off the ground. We're hunting whitetails. We're in Georgia. It's thick. It's dense. 
and this buck comes in, and you've got some, say you were you were fatty enough to put a couple of markers out there so you know exactly where 20 yards is, and he's at, he's at 24 yards, and you're going to hold high. To me, that is a variable, and it's a variable that I do not like. So if I was shooting a single pin, I might set my sight at 25 yards at practice, and I can see where my arrow hits at 18 yards or... 25 yards or 30 yards. So now I have more and safer range with one single pin focus where you're going to do what? You're going to have your your 20-yard pin and then oh, there's a 30-yard pin and you're just going to what? Put them in the middle? You're still range finding, but you're still leaving some room there. And that room is what I call a variable and I don't like them. When you start cutting variables out of everything that you do in the field, then your success rate and your mind frame of mind is going to be in a better place. So that kind of brought up a thought because you're saying that you practice with that 20-yard pin or whatever it might be, that one pin you have, and you practice what it would be like 18 yards and 15 yards and 25 yards from that one pin so you know what it's going to be like even though you have that one pin to work with. Right. So, for instance, I went elk hunting this year. I got to camp. It was late. I had maybe 15 minutes to shoot. I set my pin at 40 yards. So I loosened up my sight, and I slid the sight, which is just a hand turn, and I calibrated it in. I shoot a CBE sight. And it's a slider is what they kind of call it. So I put it at 40 yards. So I went to 20 yards, and I shot, and I was dead fine, meaning... I'm tacking. Arrows are landing where they're supposed to land. I go to 40 yards and I'm good. I go to 50 yards and I'm dropping out maybe five inches. So I can shoot with a bow that shoots 308 feet per second, which is pretty easy to do these days. And the bow I shoot is has 80% let off, which that means I get to relax in the shot. I don't. I can aim the bow. I don't have to panic. The bow's not going to go off in my hand. I can relax and aim because 80% let off is way better than, say, a 70% let off. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, my bull was at 35 yards. And the only reason why I know that, I range found the tree that he was by. I never range found the animal because I knew the night before I was good to 40 and, and 45 and out to 50. But I knew the bull was somewhere in that 30 to to 40 yard range. I thought he was under 40 for sure. So yeah, I might end up a couple inches high at 35 with my pin set at 40, but on a kill zone on an elk, it's, you know, 18, 24 inches, depending. I aim generally a little bit back. I shoot center mass. Most guys, whitetail guys, they like to, you know, everyone's like, oh, you got to shoot for that heart. Well, all you're doing there is you're limiting your success because you're pushing the envelope really close to your shoulder bone and your leg bone. So I aim just a little bit back, if that makes sense, four inches back or six inches back. Um, to, to, to pinpoint that, I'm about on the second rib from the back. In the early archery season this year, while I was hunting for a doe, uh, I came in probably about 15 yards in. I had a quarter away shot. When I shot, I know I was shooting towards the heart vital areas, but I shot just slightly higher. I felt it had a really good entry 
wound, but it didn't really give enough blood trail. So after a good 150 yards, the blood trail just it stopped completely. And I ended up spending good four hours or more searching for her, but I didn't have anybody around. I was well over almost an hour and a half to two hours away, so no one could come out and help me. And the night was getting dark, and I didn't have another chance to get out there the next day because it was the work week. And then after a while, I just realized that that deer is gone, and I was never, I was not able to find her. Yep. Yeah, and, there, and there's kind of a, a Bermuda Triangle there uh, that is uh, a little bit high, and it's a little more forward, and it's basically above the lungs, and there's nothing there. Um, I, I haven't physically hit that area yet. Um, I've seen my friends. I've seen my dad hit it um, with, with a bow, and the animal uh, will live, you know. They will live. Um, generally, uh, from a success rate, aiming back farther over the last uh, probably five years now, I've retrieved... Um, all of my animals, which has been great. That's good. That's uh, so, that seems seems ethical. <laughs> well, you, know, <laughs> you shoot them and you find them. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit different. I mean, uh, you know, so from an from an accuracy standpoint, an accuracy standpoint, and a um, ethical standpoint, um, I feel that I am more ethical ranging range ranging the animal, adjusting my sight and then shooting the animal. Now, that all takes time. Mm-hmm. So people will say to me, well, I used a single pin, and there was a rut, and the deer ran in, and he was running by, and I went, and I went to shoot, and I was like, well, okay, I'm listening to this guy's story, and then I've heard numerous people tell me this story. Well, I just couldn't get a shot because he's moving, you know? Okay, I get it. All right, so this is the same person that might tell me behind my back when he's talking to his buddy that I'm unethical because I shoot at 105 or 110 yards. But he was just telling us in the story that he wanted to take a shot at a, at a moving animal. Yeah. And, and to me, you know, a buck that's rutting or, or let's just, let's not even use that term so loosely. He's, he's in the chase phase um, of the rut where bucks are really moving and they're, you know, they're chasing down most does. And they're moving greater distances. I'm not. I don't even want to. I don't even want to bother with that shot. And, and a lot of times, I don't like hunting mule deer in the rut because of that. Because they're always moving. And they'll beg for a short period of time, and then they're up and they're moving. And it's it's very very nerve wracking. It's not the style of hunt that I like. I mean, if I had a gun in my hand, oh, I'd be enjoying it a lot more. I'd be putting holes, big holes in animals. <laughs> yeah. you know. You know uh, and, and I have no, 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 you know, no uh, qualms with anyone killing an animal with any weapon. You know, and, and earlier I said, you know, hey, you know, shooting an animal with a crossbow—that that's fine. You know, we have uh, obligations as hunters to kill animals, and uh, and and let's face it, the insurance companies uh, want us to do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, so we've talked a little bit about ethics of it. You know, your shot placement, the. Your slide, your slide sight, and a bow speed, bow strings. What other pieces make a difference to you? Do you see a difference shooting long distance or just shooting in general with different releases? Or, and what do you shoot, and why do you shoot it? Uh, that's a good question. Most guys that shoot a release, they just go to an archery shop and they're like, "Oh, you know, I want to shoot. Uh, I want to shoot a bow. I got to get in the release." They tell the guy, the guy's like, "Oh, well, this is the release that you want to. This is the release you want to shoot." Um, 
here's something that happened to me three days ago. I was giving an archery lesson at a, uh, at a local shop here in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the guy was um, um, shooting a release, uh, and, and I didn't shoot his release or shoot his bow first before the lesson had started. Now, I normally don't, but I was asking him to to hook on his second knuckle. He was a right-handed shooter, so he would put his finger on the trigger, and then I wanted him to drop his elbow and, uh, like, a hinge on a door. You you pull down with the elbow and back, but your your finger stays in a hook position. And, and it's basically back tension. And a lot of people get nervous when you mention back tension, you know, breaking a clean shot. Um, and so... I didn't realize until I put his release on and shot his bow um, that his his release that he had that was brand new was set on a hair trigger. Now, when you're shooting on a hair trigger, guys, it's it's exactly what it sounds like. I don't want that. I want to. I shoot a Rhino XT, and it's a hook style. So it's just it's basically a pivoting hook. Um, that you hook onto your string loop. And the reason why I shoot that is one is I get a really nice release, um, off the string, which I really like how smooth it is. But on a, on a single caliper release, which is basically if you were to take your index finger and your thumb and you touch them together and it would only be one of those moving. So the index finger would move, but the thumb would stay solid. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So what happens there is when the man is standing in front of you and you're starting to shit your pants because you can't handle the pressure because you're spending most of your time in day job in the office and all of a sudden you're in a tree stand and here's the man and you haven't seen the man in a while. You saw some pictures of him on your trail camera, but all of a sudden he's standing in front of you and you're going to try to take this caliper type of release and you're going to try to pinch it on that string. I've killed a lot of animals in my life, and I've had a couple times where I couldn't get that caliper on the string because I was shaking so bad. <laughs> I'm not above. I'm not above uh, getting excited. Um, I love that part of hunting. So when I went to a hook style, it was just easier to hook because it's only one thing, and I'm not trying to pinch a small item around my my string. Mm-hmm. Do you understand? My string loop is what I should say. Yeah. So. So that's why I shoot the Rhino XT. The next reason why I do is because my shooting coach told me that he really wanted to have a heavy trigger on me. And I was like, why? And he said, well, I want you to be able to hook the release with your finger. So bend at your index finger right now and you look at it, whether you're listening to this podcast episode or you guys, you guys were in, you guys in the studio, but, um, and you'd hook that on there and act like you're going to anchor now, as soon as you put that finger or your knuckle to your side of your face and your thing, your index finger is hooked and the piece of metal, the, the bar, the trigger, is going to go into that second knuckle. I don't like the first one because it, it, it gets people a little trigger happy. Mm-hmm. They want to they smack the trigger, and that's not what you want to do. So I hook it into the knuckle, second knuckle, and then I start to move my, my shoulder uh, from my elbow being high up on my right hand, my right 
elbow is high in the air. Now, as I start to bring that down, I rotate the shoulder. My finger stays rock solid in the hook formation. And I just, that's how I break the shot away. Now, you're looking for a clean break on your arrow. And that's, I shoot back tension, but I don't like to tell myself I'm shooting back tension. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I've got some weird phobia, and I've taught enough people now that I can say, hey, you're going to use back tension. You're going to pinch your shoulder blades together. Uh, you're going to use your shoulder as a hinge, like on a door, and you're going to open the door. Um, you're going to you know, you're going to hook your, your release, and you're going to put a bunch of pressure on that. Now, here's where things get interesting. So if I was going to say pull with equal pressure back and move that shoulder down, the elbow down, so it comes down to your side. I want you to touch your thumb to your shoulder, and that's all I want you to pay attention to. So you're at full draw, you hook. Now I just want you to touch your thumb to your shoulder on when you break that shot. And and that's all you're thinking about. And that is my way of teaching back tension, which my coach taught me that. I can't take credit for it. Mm-hmm. Um, that was Charlie Owens' uh very, very, just an incredible teacher and, and super nice guy and has done uh, so much for, for my shooting. way you're describing that, when I was getting into archery and I was, all, I was exactly the same thought, I had the trigger happy. I was pulling, literally using my finger. And I used to have a hook loop, but I ended up, I switched to, I guess it's the, what you call it, a double clamp uh, where they both open. Um, double caliber. caliber. Double caliber, yeah, there you go. Double caliber. And... Um, but before I went to that with the single hook, for whatever reason, every time I shot, I found out I was having a, either a slight draw or something because the tail end would just go an inch and a half left. Like if you do paper tuning, I'd have an inch and a half hole to the left. Um, and everything I tried, we were trying to think of maybe it was my sight. Maybe we kept moving things around. And the person at the bow shop, he goes, well, let me shoot it. And he was, every time he shot it was bullet holes. Every time I shot, right. I was an inch and a half left. Well, then he That's used right. the same uh, hook loop, the thing I was using. He was having an inch and a half left. And he goes, huh. And he gave me his release. And when I uh, used that one, I was shooting bullet holes. He says, now, it could just be his own personal opinion, but he says, there are people, and it could just be because I was still learning and I'm still trying to get better, but he was saying that I either am pulling or doing something at the end that's making that push and it makes that inch and a half left no matter what I do. He goes, so if you decide to go with the other uh, brand, then I was removing that issue. So I went ahead and bought that because I didn't want to have that inch and a half left. But when you're explaining how you're drawing back, I can almost picture maybe I wasn't even doing those steps and that could very well be what was causing my problem. Yeah, for sure. Um, you, you know, most guys um, don't have good form uh, when they're standing on the line. And it's unfortunate that um, guys have egos um, because they say, most guys here in, in Utah, they have a lot of ego. Um, it's, it's funny. They don't, they don't look up to professional hunters. They actually uh, just compare themselves. And I think it puts them at a disadvantage. Um, I, I know, you know, when I've gone back to East to the hunting shows, the mentality is different. They, they treat a pro hunter much differently uh, than, than themselves. But I think when you do that, you, you actually have a more open mind to 
learning. And, and that is a, that's a big thing. Um, cause I believe archers in general, or let's just say hunters, because there's a very big difference between a hunter and an archer. If you want to, if you are a current hunter and you want to be an archer, then most people will think, well, I'll just go buy a new, new site or a new rest or a new bow and that'll make me better. Well, it, it can help. It can definitely help. But if, you were to take a lesson from somebody and spent $200 uh, for, say, six lessons, if you could find someone for that, that cheap. I think you should be able to find someone for, you know, 25 to 50 bucks an hour. In that hour amount of time that I would teach you, I spent more than 10 years getting there. So, would that be worth 50 bucks or 25 an hour? I would think so. I'm not trying to get more lessons. I would love to have more lessons. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, uh, it's interesting to see how people spend their money. And a guy that has lots of attitude and hunting is a big ego sport. Um, if you really want to get good, you take lessons. And, and I think, um, you know, the gear, I couldn't shoot the way I shoot if it wasn't for the gear. The, the, the setup that I have built is a sniper setup. It's the best setup that you can use with today's modern technology and, and what it has to offer is the best, hands down. If, if, if there was better stuff, I would be shooting it. Mm-hmm. And that's no joke. I'm not saying that because of my sponsors at all. I'm not. So basically you're saying that because the equipment you have is definitely make you a better hunter um, as a Muslim marksman, but uh, you probably could still do the same tactics with any other bow, but because you have either a higher end bow, it's giving you that little bit more of an edge on top of the skill level that you have. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, for instance, I, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. The other day I shot, a competitor's bow, and it was less than 80% let off. The bow shot 354 feet per second, which is ripping fast. Now, <laughs> 7 to 10 years ago, it was hard to find a bow that at my draw length, which I was a little bit cramped up at first. I was shooting a 27-inch. Now I shoot a 28-inch, which is, is which is, allows me to be a little more comfortable when I'm at full draw. Um, there's, there's a lot of things to do right, and, and you've got to ask your, your pro shop, like, you know, my draw length is this. I need my, my arm a little bit bent. I need to learn how to draw the bow. I need to know how to push and pull. And, you know, I need my feet right. I need my body position right. It doesn't take much when you talk to someone that knows what they're doing and can teach someone in a simple way and show them the correct way to get better faster. Mm-hmm. And the gear makes my job easier. I could do it with lesser gear, a lesser, a lesser bow, uh, a lesser sight. But when you really start talking about accuracy and being a sniper with a bow, to me, that gets me excited. I'm looking for all the advantages that I can possibly get to stack on my side of the line to be more successful at killing. Take the variables out. That's it. That's it. Mm -hmm. Well, 
you know, you're talking a little bit about making making it more challenging. You know, it's there's there's a lot of videos and there's a lot of backstory with with some of your spots that you went and filmed at and and made some awesome videos in the past. And it really mm-hmm. some of those really showed kind of you pushing the envelope and taking those challenging shots in in a 3D setup environment. You know, I, I was lucky enough I got to come up and, and shoot a 3D shoot with you up in South Dakota and a, a awesome group of guys. Um, couple of them were phenomenal archers. And I mean, I, I was, I was, I was just chasing, trying to keep up with you guys, but just seeing how you guys acted on the course, you, we'd come up to a specific shot and I mean, in, in a unanimous voice, everyone would look and be like, yeah, this doesn't work. Let's go back up there around that tree. And, and you made every single shot out there more difficult and it was a blast. It really kind of, you could feel everyone excited to kind of create the next shot and, and, and challenge themselves so is that kind of i'm trying to figure out how to portray that to more people in the south and other parts of the country where 3d is not as big what do you get out of that thrill of kind of pushing the envelope and challenging yourself in some of these 3d courses where where does your thrill come from i think i mean i think you said it the thrill comes from i mean first off let's let's back up from a safety standpoint uh the first thing is is you know we were changing the shot on the course, but we were also safety was first, mm-hmm. you know, you were there. We never risked, you know, getting in the way of someone else's shot on say we are on hole seven and, and, you know, where we're encroaching on hole eight. No, that was not happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were safe the whole time, but where all I can say is if you want, you have to kind of, it's just a kind of a tricky question. I'm I'm going to do the best. Okay, so <laughs> if if you want to, if if I live in Georgia and I want to be more successful, I am going to go in my backyard. There's trees everywhere there, and I'm going to put a tree stand um, a little bit higher than normal. I'm going to take the average guy and I'm going to say, okay, you're average. You're going to go 10 to 12 feet. Great. I'm going 15 feet. So my canopy starts at like 16 to 18 feet where branches start really branching off and I can't cut all that timber out of the woods, right? Because you're punching up closer to the top. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm speaking as if I've hunted there. I have not hunted in Georgia. This is mm-hmm. hypothetically, I'm, I'm I mean, you're, this you're actually right on to what that's about. Yeah. When you hit over 15 okay. feet, you're hitting into some thick area. You can start seeing the branches and you're having to cut through it. Okay. So what I want to do is I want to get a little bit higher than everyone else because one, the deer are already conditioned for everybody else. I don't have any desire to be like anyone else. I never have since the day I started doing what I've done as my whole life. Um, so let's, let's go a little bit higher Let's cut a few more branches. Let's manufacture some poles together and duct tape them together, which I've done out west. I put tree stands in at 65 feet off the ground and 55 feet off the ground. Um, And I'm going to cut some branches up higher so I can start punching some holes, meaning I can punch holes down on that ground. So I'm in my backyard. I'm going to set it at, uh, try to get to 20 feet. And uh, I'm going to measure that with my bow rope that I would drop down to pick up my bow off the ground. And I'm going to not let my bow sit on the ground because I carried it in. I don't really want any more scent that I want to have on the ground. So I'm just going to have it so the bow hangs. 
And uh, I'm going to pull that up. I'm going to set that stand. I'm going to make sure it's rock solid. I'm going to have a safety belt up there. Um, I may even have a rope, you know, out here. I've done a lot of rock climbing, so I'll just have a rope with me, and I'll either be belayed or I'll set a static line on it and do it that way so it's safe. And then I I started shooting out west, and I took a uh, a two-and-a-half-inch wide PVC pipe. I cut it 18 inches long. I drilled a hole through it. I tied a rope or a string to that all the way up to the side. So I would lower down this tube with the bottom on the, on the PVC pipe and I would shove all the arrows in there and I would haul up, you know, a half a dozen or, well, probably, you know, 10 or 12 arrows. Let's just say a dozen for shits and giggles. And I would shoot a dozen arrows. <laughs> so I would have three or four targets down below. I live in Georgia and I'm going to set up some shots out there that are going to be a total pain in the butt. And, and, yeah, I might lose a couple arrows that day. And I don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't care about losing a couple arrows. Even when I paid for arrows, I would lose over a dozen a year. But a dozen a year means what's happening in that process as you are pushing the envelope of your shooting. Well, for one, I'll tell you that you're going to start learning your trajectory of your particular arrow and that bow. So once you start losing trajectory, learning that trajectory, you're going to learn the arc is what I mean by that. So mm-hmm. you're learning about that, what you can get away with and what you can't. So you need to have someone on the ground. Your buddy comes over. He's hanging out. He's, you've got a few different targets out there. You guys have split money on the targets, and you're, you're moving around. You're making these cool shots, and you know you shoot three or four times, and then you come down, and, and then you change. And then you step back to the base of the tree and he starts shooting and everything, you know, make sure everything's safe and uh, make sure you keep on coming back to the tree. We always did that. And you just let that guy shoot and you're talking to him and you're having fun and and you're learning uh, how to place arrows on, you know, steep angles. What if you're 20, 20 feet off the ground and the deer is, you know, 13 feet away from the tree? Now you're aiming four inches away from the spine to the left side because the deer is, you know, 35, 37 degrees angle. So -hmm. really you're only shooting that deer for 10 yards, right? Right. Because you're 20 feet up in the ground and you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you're shooting the animal from the distance. If you were standing on the ground, when you start shooting steep angles, you're shooting the distance from where you start to climb on the tree flat across the ground to where the deer is. That's the true distance to the deer. Even though you're up in a tree on an angle, you're still shooting them for the horizontal line. Does that make sense? Gravity, gravity affects an arrow the same no, no matter what height it's coming from. Yes, it does. But the apotheosis of angle is what you are breaking down and learning. And so the mm-hmm. best way I can say that is, is most rangefinders now have, you know, angle finding uh, capabilities. You know, I, I shoot uh, Swarovski uh, EL, and it's the EL range, so it's got a built-in rangefinder in the binoculars. I'm very fortunate to work with those guys, and they do they do an amazing job with their optics. Everyone knows that. Uh, so, you know, playing the, the game out west, you have to have that. I would still have that, and I still would hunt with that tool if I was in Georgia. So that's how I challenge myself. That's what I would say that 
you know, get together with three or four guys and hook up every Tuesday and Wednesday or Tuesday, Friday night and get it done, man. Like get good. I would want, I would be, if I could kill those here in the state of Utah, I would probably kill around four does a year easily. Mm-hmm. A lot, a lot of different regulations. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, for, for, of course. But if you want to get good at killing, you know, the only way to get good at it is by doing it. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of guys that think, oh, I'm only going to kill a big buck. Well, that's great. When the big buck stands out in front of you, you'll choke. And, and you know, we can sit back at camp <laughs> after we're done hunting and we can have a beer and I can, uh, I can pretty much uh, bust on your balls all night long about how you're the big white hunter, but yet you, you can't shoot a doe and you wouldn't shoot a doe. And if you would have shot the three does that you said you could have shot, then you probably would have learned how to shoot better and you would have learned when to draw your bow. And you would have also learned when to, to, you know, release that arrow, the timing of the gate on the animal, which you never see pros on TV talk about the gate of the animal. You know, most of the guys on TV, from what I understand, and, and, you know, they might not like to hear this, but most of them can't shoot that well. Most of them are like, yeah, I got my own TV show. I shoot 20 and 30 yards. I hunt whitetails my whole life. This is what I do. I guess that's probably why you do see them a lot say, you know, we're going to sit back and give them a couple hours just to settle down. And when you do see their shot, they're usually hitting far back. Sometimes it's a a gut shot. And I've seen that happen a lot. I I can agree. Yeah. I mean, you should, oh my God, let's face it, boys and girls. Let's just say it. But they're so worried on TV that someone's going to get mad and then someone's going to tell you guys, oh, that Anthony Dixon guy, you know, you know, I'll tell you right now, I shot an elk three times at 99 yards, 99 yards. I shot him three times. The first arrow, when I hit him, he took the round behind the rib cage. So that means I'm in the gut, right? Yeah. I was, I was eight inches above his belly and I was about three inches behind his last rib and the elk took the round and he never moved. And I ducked back over the ridge line. I reloaded so I wouldn't give my position. I came to full draw, and I came off the ridge line again to full draw. He was still there, and I shot again. And I'm like, son of a gun. I mean, I, I thought I saw that arrow hit him. So I went back down, meaning I leaned forward so he couldn't see where the round came from. I reloaded. I drew behind the ridge, popped back up, he was still standing there, and I shot him again. And that time I saw the arrow hit him right where I told you. I had all three of those arrows within eight inches of each other and punched him three times at 99 yards. Jeez. And guess how far that elk went? 100 yards? 40. <laughs> 10. 10. Well, <laughs> okay. <yeah. laughs> and this is what happened. And this is what happened. When, when I sat there after the third round went off, I just stayed there. I was like, I'm not shooting my last arrow because I know I hit him and I hit him hard. But his, what I looked at is I looked at his ears and his ears were folded back. And then his back end started to crunch up towards his front end, which meant what happens here on this particular shot, which I did not know at the time, is the intestines start to push through that hole which causes a great deal of discomfort to the animal. 
So when you think like a gut shot is a really bad shot, what I learned was is it's not a good shot for blood. But if you get off the mountain or get get away from that deer, and I mean, you got to be so quiet leaving because if you push him at all and he does move from the last location that you saw him, usually they, they lay down very quickly or they won't even lay down. They'll just stand there and they'll stand until they fall. So what happens on this particular shot, and I called my buddy who did 18 years in special operations, not special forces, special operations, which is a way higher level. And I said to him, I said, what is happening to the body at this point? He said, uh, it's contamination. You have basically ripped through the liner of the stomach. You are pushing intestines. There's blood in there. He, he's going to bleed out the hole. Uh, you probably got an exit, so he's going to bleed out of that one. And the infection is going to start to take place. And I was like, what? How does an infection take place? I just shot him within half an hour, 10 minutes. And he's like, as soon as that starts to happen, the infection of the intestines starts to go through the body. The blood in the heart moves that infection through the body. And I said, okay, you know, when's he going to die? And he goes, Eight to 12 hours. Oh, my gosh. And I said, well, is he in a lot of pain? He says, they don't have a lot of nerve endings, so no. I'm like, what do you mean they don't have a lot of nerve endings? He's like, well, dude, they're not like us. We've got millions of nerve endings. How you can, you can, you know, someone poke you with a pin, and the head on a pin is what? I couldn't even tell you how small that is. And you feel it in your finger, anywhere on your body, and you feel it but an animal doesn't have near those nerve endings. So I was like, okay, well, I felt a little bit better about this, right? Because at first I was like aiming back and I didn't really want to hit that spot, but I did. So the guys on TV need to just say, yeah, I hit that arrow, that, that animal back and this is what's happening and this is what I'm going to do. But it's really key to get down out of that tree without making a sound. And then can you leave, can you leave with not making a bunch of noise on the ground with vegetation? meaning dry leaves that have, have, you know, fallen and it's fall time, you know, do you need to buck up and stay there for three or four hours? How many guys would do that? Not many. I don't think very many. <laughs> no, they're usually excited when to find it. Yeah. Remember that man, you know, remember that manly moment that, you know, everyone's so macho and hunting, but are they willing to stick it out and stay there for three hours? I mean, nowadays, how you can sit in the tree and text everyone you know. Now you could even take Facebook and blast it out on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. My point is this. The guys on TV need to pay attention more on their shooting. And how they can do that, which I think is uh, very funny, is take lessons from, you know, uh, target archers. And most of them give lessons. And most of them are very, very good shooters. And if you take the shooting and you incorporate that into your hunter that you are supposedly a good hunter. You've killed a few deer in your life. But if you want to be a killer, you need to incorporate being an archer and a hunter. So form is really a big part. A proper form, the mechanics of your shooting is going to be the really what's going to set you apart from a, a sniper hunter with a bow or a gun, no matter what, or um, just someone that's going and shooting anything in sight. Sure. Yeah. Most of the guys that would chirp someone or give someone like myself grief or 
I don't, you know, I didn't have ethics or this or that. I, I went through a, quite a bit of that on the first, uh, the first two movies that we made. Mm-hmm. And then on the third one, we named it Proof. And it was just this, uh, I took a, you know, one of those pudding things that you get at the grocery store and I lifted the lid open and took a couple of photos of this pudding. And then I put our logo on the back of the pudding uh, container and, and the name of the movie was Proof. And uh, it was basically, it just showed us practicing and doing what we did on a weekly basis. We trained um, as hard as you could train uh, not being professionals. So we would train three days a week filming and shooting for, we did it for about four years. And I still train at the same location up in the mountains. Uh, but what happens is, is you become very, very efficient. And that is, that's to me, that excessive behavior disorder that I have. Uh, <laughs> I enjoy it. <laughs> You know, I, I'm not going to lie to anyone. I'm a, I'm the, the total jackass, nutty guy. I, I, you know, I have my goofball ways of doing things. Um, I'm, I'm not a perfect person. I'm, I'm not the best archer in the world. I'm not the best hunter in the world. Uh, I just have fun at what I do, and I, and I really enjoy teaching people um, and, and will tell anyone anything that I have uh, that I've learned over the years. Um, and, and this is why when I first started and I, and I met a few pros, they would never tell me anything, nothing. And, and, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up their names just because that would be cheap and they can't defend themselves. Um, but I was really surprised that how these people in our industry suppressed their knowledge. And I had one guy even tell me, he said, you know, you're just making my job harder. And this is a pro that I had looked up to. And this is a pro that makes, you know, hundreds of thousand dollars a year. He's able to hunt where he wants, when he wants, and he pays out, you know, you know, ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars to 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 kill his his animals a year. And that's what that's what his words were to me when I first met him and I first you know, showed him our first DVD that we were making and, and I didn't even watch it. I just showed him a trailer and stuff like that. And that was his response. And I really thought that was something that, um, at the time I thought I will not be that way. And, um, I never have been, I never will be. I think people need to learn, uh, as quick as they can and enjoy this sport and, uh, and have fun. Well, what's one thing, you know, if you can portray something or give, some piece of advice to that next generation that's coming up, that, that next group that is just starting to get thirsty and go into their local archery shop and pro shop and starting mm-hmm. to ask questions. What's, what's one little nugget you could give them to help them take that next step? Into being what? Into doing what? Into, into pursuing archery and becoming an actual archer not just the everyday hobby but the guy that's there's there's a ton of there's a ton of them out there in utah i mean we've met a lot of guys who are in that you know 15 to 24 year year old range they all want to be the next for 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 terms the the next anthony dixon they you know they they grew up Mm -hmm. watching your videos and seeing you around town and they're trying to get to that next step of being either you know a professional archer or just being a very, very, very good and efficient hunter. 
you know, what's that next step once they pick a bow up and, and start shooting? Where do they go from there? Well, I think they have to ask themselves what they want. Do you want to get free gear? Because there's a lot of guys that get free gear that, um, I, I guess I'll back up. If, if they want free gear, that's one thing. If they want to make money at it, that's another thing. They think because they may have the Facebook tweet and do these social media, as they call it, they think that they should deserve something for that. But that's pretty easy to do that now. So my suggestion is, is go out there and start killing some animals. And you got to kill a lot of animals. And that means does, bucks. You got to go to different states. If you want to see someone, if, if you want to get good at this, you got to travel. And when you travel and you can kill when you travel, that means you break down situations very fast. Even though you're, you're not from that particular location, you still have to assess the situation. You have to be able to understand the situation and say, this is the fastest, easiest way to kill this particular animal. And that's where most guys can't do it. They want to go back and drink 10 beers and have a good time and then have some dinner and do all that. They like the idea of the hunt, but they're not necessarily willing to put the effort in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the guy that's going to be pushing it to, to write an article, then you got to go kill a bunch of animals. Mm-hmm. And you have to go to ATA, and you have to sell yourself, and that means you have to have business cards, and you have to have like seven to ten articles already written, and then you're going to submit those articles to someone there, and you're going to have to try to get them to give you ten minutes of time. But the biggest thing is, is, they all have a problem with this. Every manufacturer has a problem with this. No one wants to work first to prove that they're worth it. Mm -hmm. They just want the free gear and the money, but it doesn't work that way because everyone in the industry that owns a company has been burned 50 to a hundred times. So if you're a worker and, and you've got a lot of personal drive, then this might be for you. But you give that advice not only from the aspect of you did it yourself. You, you came into this industry and went through those steps and got where you are now, but also because you're the owner of a company. I mean, you, you designed and you own and you've put to test 46 Rail, which is a, a camo company that's out of Utah. Mm-hmm. So you, you give these guys advice from, from both sides, from the, the aspect of a kid coming up to what the business owner or the owner of the company is actually looking for. Now, yeah. with, with 46 Rail, I mean, talk a little bit about it. I mean, it, it, it's kind of a broad topic, but we talked about bows and all of the gear and how that can make you a better hunter. With the camo, 46 Rail, what sets it apart and how does you incorporate it into your style of hunting? Uh, 46 Rail uh, was started about five years ago. Hmm? And it is a apparel company, and we make a pant, jacket, vest, glove, hat, and a beanie. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea behind it was I wanted more design features and function, and I wanted some durability. And when we started with design, because I came from the ski industry and I looked around at like the companies nowadays that are making gear, um, they're making gear and they're designing it but they do it in a way that sometimes insults the hunter. So when I designed the pants, we designed something that was very tapered. It wasn't because tapered pants are in right now. 
It has nothing to do with that. What it has to do with is we wanted something that's tight around the legs so you can maneuver very quickly through the woods and be quiet. So if, if you're not used to moving in the woods, you sit behind a desk and you buy a pair of Kuyu pants and you're wearing them around and you've got an extra four inches down at the bottom in the diameter of the pant and they're baggy and, and yeah, the materials are, you know, what they are. I wanted something that was tapered that has function. So we put panels, we have 34 panels in our pants and those panels stretch to double their standing width or length. So it's a directional flex. And we basically put those panels in the pant and the jacket to be able to move the way the body moves. So looking at your body and you say, well, let's see my biggest joints, hips, butt, crotch, knee, elbow, you know, every part about our body, the way it moves, we try to accentuate that movement into the clothing line so there's less binding, so more freedom. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. We used uh, lightweight materials that dry fast. So we came out with a gear that works from 75 degrees to 32 degrees. It dries fast. It's it's made for the West, but it works really well for whitetail hunting. I've done a ton of whitetail hunting in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually on my still... My first pair of pants that we built, um, I've got about 58 days in them. I don't wash them. We don't use any scent lock type material or scent blocker or scent shield or scent scent or scent or whatever. Um, because my theory on that is, is that stuff, from what I understand, it can't work because you have to heat it up to the charcoal. You had to heat it up so hot that the fabric would actually burn. Interesting. Really? Yeah. And that was straight from the industry. That's why scent blocker got sued and lost and came out with their new name and their new scent blocker technology just because they lost a lawsuit and they had to pay out which of course no one's going to tell you that because you know they don't want anyone to know mm-hmm. that's why you don't see michael waddell back his scent blocker you ever hear him say i shot this deer because of it no yeah i wonder why you know he he hunts smart he hunts using the wind to his advantage Mm-hmm. Michael is a great hunter, and he can shoot. He's one of the few guys on TV that can shoot. <laughs> so anyway, that's how 46 Rail started, which was being frustrated with you know gear that was out there that was not made to move and strike fast and kill fast, and that's what uh, we set out to do. Well, and talk it's about fun to wear. It is, you know, talk about the jacket a little bit and kind of the design of the jacket, kind of where you got the ideas from it. Well, the jacket was is a shorter cut, and it's a very tapered arm, so you're not going to have problems drawing your bow with a big bulky jacket on. There's a top-of-the-arm uh, zipper that really allows that, that jacket to taper down. And if you call us, we can talk to you about fitting. Our pants run a little bit big, and um, so we would... We suggest, like, if you're a 32 in a pair of jeans, we would suggest you to drop down to a 30. And the jacket uh, moves very well. It's uh, got a uh, 3.8 inch fleece on the inside, so it's very lofty, which loft creates warmth and air. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the pants being tapered um, are very nice for putting on a pair of big, uh, you know, waterproof whitetail boots. Mm-hmm. Um, to keep your scent down so you don't have a bunch of pant piled up or 
you know, when you put your foot in, uh, your pant leg gets pulled up and then your sock is, you know, sitting there and, you know, it just doesn't fit into that boot. Um, ours fit into that extremely well. We have a nice, uh, very nice tight fitting glove. Mm-hmm. Gives you a lot of sensitivity. It's not a, it's not a cold weather glove. It's made for shooting and being able to shoot all weapons. And we've had very good success with it as far as the durability goes on that. What comes from, uh, we took a lot of the idea, the designs from uh, motocross for the glove and mountain biking, and we married them together with what we needed. The pants, uh, some of the ideas come from motocross, and then we crossed it up and put in very small pockets. We don't have a lot of pockets in our stuff because we, we really wanted guys to concentrate on what was at hand, and that was killing. Um, we didn't want stuff when you took off running or moving fast. Things were jostling around in your pockets, like your car keys or your range finder. You know, our angled pocket in the back of the pant um, is bigger in the back with a stretchable material there that allows the range finder to be on the outside of the leg. So rather than the pocket being built on the inside and then you slip something in there and it's very uncomfortable, this pocket's actually built on the outside. And it's mm-hmm. angled in the front so it doesn't catch on brush. So there was lots of little things that we paid attention to to allow a guy that doesn't have a lot of time to hunt. But we wanted to make sure that when he does go in the, the woods to hunt, that we're able to help him in little tiny ways. Cool. And that's what we did. So how's your how's your hunt season been so far? I mean, we're talking about we're talking about all the gear, we're talking about camo, we're talking about the industry, but the fun stuff. How's your season been? What are you doing? What do you still have left? I have had a relatively difficult year coming off of an extremely high year last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was able to kill a 355-inch bull this year. I had drawn some a tag in a special unit in the state of Utah that I had about, I think I had six points. Uh, and you can only achieve a point one per year. So... Um, I drew the sag and I went out and I hunted and had a great time and it was uh, successful killing a really good bull. And, uh, then after that I had, um, issues with timing and family and being able to coordinate hunts. And then I actually had to cancel one hunt. Um, it was, it was a little bit of a, an off year. Then I ended up going to South Dakota and then these bizarre temperatures that they had, usually we would have temperatures in the 40s and 50s, which makes it very conducive to, to getting the job done. I've, I've been batting a 1,000 over there in South Dakota, and this year, you know, to get a goose egg was a real punch in the shorts. So um, not the best year. I have one more tag left. I will go hunting with my 7-year-old daughter and my 10-year-old son, and we are going to go and shoot a antlerless elk tag that I actually had to draw, and I had three points, uh, point per year again, and I will do that hunt in January with them and introduce my seven-year-old daughter to hunting on that hunt, hiking in snow, and uh, I'm, I'm very confident that we will get the job done, and I'll have some photos up of uh, shooting a cow, which I've never done. I've never shot a cow elk, but... You know we're gonna we're gonna cut her up, quarter her. We're all gonna carry some meat out, um, even my daughter. And you know we're gonna we're gonna eat really really well. That's great. That's awesome. That that's a, yeah. Hopefully that goes that way. It's a great way to end the season, man. 
I, I, I hope so. I mean, you know, it's really funny right now. We've got 40 and 50 degree weather here and we don't have much snow and it's uh, difficult hunting. I don't know what's going on, man. I feel like I live in Georgia. <laughs> We're working with 70 degree weather still. Yeah. Are you really? Seriously. We had a a warm front that just recently came in. So we've had some decent mornings, like 60 or 30 or 40, but then immediately pulls up to 70 degrees. It's that way way through the night. I mean, I walk outside and and take my dog out and take him for a run and I'm wearing shorts and shorts and a a short leaf shirt, you know, at 730, 8 o'clock at night. Wow. Well, our gear works well for that uh, that temperature and, and where you guys are sitting. Now, is your rut already rolling or coming or gone or where are you guys? Right now, Georgia is very sporadic. Um, we've, we've got people kind of all from the north all the way down to the south, all the way down to Florida that we've been talking to. And it is so different from, you know, if you go, uh, if you go 60 miles from one guy, 60 miles north to, to another guy that's hunting a property – one guy had the rut going two weeks ago. The other one just saw his his first kind of scrapes really starting to happen uh, two or three days ago. And so it's the I don't know genetics. That's one thing I'm trying to dive into is what actually kicks a rut in because it just seems so sporadic throughout our, throughout the entire state down here. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So, well, are you guys going to be able to get out and get into it? I mean, what's what's I, going on with you guys? We're lucky. We have a. Um, a pretty good sized WMA, not far from yep. from me and Travis. That's bow only. Good. So it's that's kind great. of a uh, it's it's a blast. A lot of the state right now is in uh, with all the right for rifle. It's uh, buck only. So a lot of the guys kind of sit home and don't do anything. Whereas archery is is either sex. So we're gonna we're gonna get to it. Probably uh, me and Travis probably get together on Sunday and go out go out to another piece of property. Um, and you know, more than likely, I'll, I'll be out tomorrow as well, just trying to see if I can see if I can uh, fill one of the uh, twelve tags that we have here in Georgia. <laughs> yeah, I see. I see. Well, definitely. You guys are all um, built in. All the weapons are running right. You're ready to go. I already got uh, a dough in the freezer. Oh, good. Congrats. Yeah. Um, you know, I never heard anyone use the term "doped in" for for a bow. <laughs> and yeah. and I, but but you're absolutely right. I mean, just listening to you and you know trying to heed advice that, that, that you've given me as well as uh, a couple of the other, the other elite guys that, that they've told me. Bowling is a mental game, man. You've got you've got to uh, embrace it and mm-hmm. change it and move within it and make it better. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot more to archery than than I think the majority of uh, of guys out there who shoot a bow. There, there, there's a lot more little technical details that go into it than just you know your your arrow, your sight, your rest, and your bow. There's there's a lot of things you can tweak and have fun with. It's part of that whole challenging yourself thing. You know, shoot different yeah. things, keep tweaking stuff, and see how it affects your shot. But but all the all that's all that's learned from you, man. You you have a a wealth of knowledge when it comes to to the technical side of of bows and what a bow can be capable of. Well, you know, you guys doing this show, you guys are going to be catching me. Very quickly, <laughs> you guys will learn so fast. It's just awesome. That's what that's what's so cool about what you guys are doing. So, you know, keep up the good work, and uh, you know, I'd love to come back on if you'll have me, and um, you know, let me know if uh, there's anything I can do for you guys. Oh, absolutely. Well, thanks again for being on. Yeah, no problem, man. Thank you. All right, guys. I'll talk to you soon. 
Cool. Hey, talk to you later. See ya. I honestly think that that was probably the coolest interview that we've done to date. He's got so much knowledge. What, what do you think, Scott? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just his knowledge base spans a lot of things. I mean, obviously from, you know, how to long distance shoot, why you do it, you know, to there's a lot of stuff we didn't dive into there. I'm sure we'll on one of the next podcasts, but why camo is so important and how to use it. That's another big feature. We didn't even get it chance to touch the topic with them which we will on, we will on one coming up i'm sure oh yeah but uh, then you know just hunting in general if you guys get a chance to sit down and talk with anthony you see him at a show or you see him out at, at one of the uh local pro shops talk to him he will talk your ear off about hunting and and you know he'll give you all the advice that you, that you want to take in everything is everything's a personal personal story so you know, take it as it is and, and go out and do something with it. Well, like how he even says it, you know, when you, if you want to talk about ethics, really truthfully, the way he does things, the way he does it, he, even though he's shooting long distance, it seems like he's taking a strong, clear approach. And so once you put it on the table, his shots are great. He knows what he's doing. And then when you comply it to someone else, that's just an average hunter, I think he's doing better than most. Well, you know, to, to, dive a little bit into it and the the background of that there's a lot of guys out there that just cringe anytime they see a long distance shot you know anytime they see it on film or hear about it one of those you know even at the 75 yard range people still just cringe at it um you know and he has a movie that came out called proof you know it's it's all those long shots them practicing 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 the biggest point to take away is that shoot where you're comfortable at in, in, when you're in the field. If your comfort range is only 35 yards, only shoot at 35 yards, but practice and push yourself when you're in the offseason. Go out there, and, and if your comfort range is only 35 yards, go and push yourself to be shooting at 65 and 70. Because if you can start to see a success at 65 and 70 on a target, you're probably never going to take that shot, but that just builds confidence when you're taking that 35-yard shot that that's your comfort zone. So, I mean, when it comes down to ethics, always just take it upon yourself to shoot where you're comfortable. doesn't matter where that's at. If you're not comfortable with the shot, don't take it. I totally agree. Well, you know, I was, I, I was very happy to have him on. I'm glad he could take some time away from, from the family and during the season and and really come on, talk to us a little bit. I'm looking forward to getting him back on real soon. Definitely. You know, if anybody that's listening to this episode, if you'd like to check out our show notes, go to mybowrush.com forward slash 008. It will take you right to the page with all the information on this show. And then you have the opportunity to listen to other shows as well. And you guys, you know, do us a huge favor. Uh, if you get a chance, uh, go check us out and go check out mybowrush.com forward slash iTunes. Make sure to leave a review, leave a remark, you know, help us push this out there so more people can start calling us, email us, let us know what they want to hear about and what kind, of, what kind of questions they have so we can get those answered for you guys. As always, this is Scott Nelson. I'm Travis Stowe. And, you know, I'm pretty sure as Anthony would say, go get your weapon doped in and go get a bow rush. Nice. Nice.